Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So now in Parshat Hanan, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Would someone like to read? And this is the instruction, the laws and the rules that your God has commanded it to impart to you to be observed in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy, so that you, your children, and your children's children may revere your God as follows, as long as, and follow, as long as you live all the divine laws and commandments that I enjoin upon you to the end that you may long endure. Obey, O Israel, willingly and faithfully, that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, as Adonai, uh, the God of your ancestors, spoke to you. Hear, O Israel, Adonai is our God, Adonai alone. You shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Take no heart these instructions with which I charge you this day. Impress upon them your children. Recite them when you stay at home. When you are away, when you lie down, and when you get up, find them as a sign upon your hand, and let them serve as a symbol on your forehead. Inscribe them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. All right, we're going to stop there. So when we look at the at verse one, right, when we're looking at the instructions, the laws, and the rules that God is commanding Moshe in this uh, in this part of Deuteronomy to teach, right, to give to the people Israel. We get this introduction to Shema, right? And verse 3, obey Israel willingly and faithfully. This is an important part of all of this observance business. It is to be willing. It is to be something that one takes on voluntarily, right? So one is obligated, but a covenant is fairly meaningless without my having the ability not to choose it, right? If it's, yes, you're obligated, and if you don't do it, I'm going to kill you, right? Okay, well, all right, then I opt in, uh, right? But it is far more meaningful if I offer a relationship and someone accepts, right? And so there, there's this, there's an idea, there's a balance always in rabbinic tradition between ahava and yir'ah, love and awe, love and fear. And the rabbis say it is much better always than preferred to serve God out of love. That is very much the tone here, um, a willing, faithful, loving acceptance of a relationship. And in the language of the rabbis, omachut shemaim, accepting lovingly the uh the yoke of heaven to take upon ourselves being obligated um, and that is very much the language and the imagery used by Deuteronomy and and it is promised that when we do that things will go well with us as it says at verse 3 looking now to verse 4 Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Shema Yisrael is used lots of times in Deuteronomy. So listen up. Israel is the beginning of a sermon. It's the beginning of a teaching that we're supposed to pay attention to. So Shema Yisrael, listen up Israel. Now we're very familiar with the Hebrew. We are very familiar with English translations of Shema Yisrael. We're not sure what it means. If I ask you what it means, you're going to tell me what it means. Okay. We certainly are attached to these words, and we're attached to the meaning that has come down to us about these words. That is lovely and fine, and we love that we have this tradition, and it's gorgeous, and it's wonderful. Um, but we're going to do what we always do. We're going to take a few steps back from what we assume. We're going to put ourselves in the actual language of Deuteronomy, and we're going to look at the actual language of Shema. Just for a little bit to play honestly with, with what's going on. Why do I say we don't know what it means? So, 
Tell me literally, not what we put in. Literally, what do these words mean? Okay, so this is listen or hear. What is this? Israel. Meaning the people Israel, right? Descendants of Israel. What is this? Right? Yod Hey Vav Hey, the ineffable name of God, yes? Shema Yisrael, Adonai, what is this? Eloheinu, what does Eloheinu mean? Our God. Yes, containing another, you know, name for God, El. Our, though. So, and the new makes it ours. All right, so what do we have so far? Listen, Israel, yud Hey vav Hey, our God. Again, yud Hey vav Hey. What is this? One. What's missing for us English speakers? Verbs. Verbs. What verb is missing? Is. Is. So, where you put is matters. Because this doesn't say anything. This doesn't say anything. Listen, Israel, Yudheva, well, it says Yudheva, something about Yudheva being our God, presumably. Yudheva, Eloheinu, Yudheva, one. There's no, you, you have to put a present tense verb in here somewhere to make it be a statement about something, right? All right. Also, Commas matter, right? You know, where you break something as a clause. So, you know, let's eat, Grandma. You know, it's one thing, right? Let's, right? Let's eat, Grandma is something else. So you need that comma, let's eat, comma, Grandma. Or the sentence is very different, right? And the meaning it connotes is drastically different. Same here. Where you put the clauses matters. Presumably... We can put a comma here after Israel. Shema Israel. Like, listen up, Israel. And then something's going to come after that. Presumably, we kind of know. We've seen this introduction in other texts in, in Torah. So, okay, so we know that's a thing. The, but the other thing you may not know is a thing is Adonai Eloheinu. That's a thing. It's used almost 24 times in Deuteronomy. Why am I pointing that out? What does that do? Remind you that God is part of it. What it separates us from other groups. It's wait, 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 not the meaning of it. What, what does it mean that I just told you Adonai Eloheinu is a thing that appears 24 times? It's a, it's a formulaic thing. It's a formulaic thing, meaning what am I not going to put in here, presumably? I'm not going to put is. If this appears lots of times in Torah, I'm not going to stick an is in there because this is... Adonai Eloheinu, Yudhei Vavhei, our God, something, something, something. And listen to Yudhei Vavhei, our God. Follow the ways of Yudhei Vavhei, our God. You don't have to stick an is in there, but we do. Don't we? Because often, how do we hear this translated? Listen up, Israel. Yudhei Vavhei is our God. Yudhei Vavhei is one. So we stick two is's in there. But now that you know that this is a clause from Deuteronomy, it's less likely that is goes here. Right? All right. So we're going to play with that then. All right. If, the, if there's no is here, what is this saying? Shema Yisrael. Listen up, Israel. Yud he vav he our God. Yud he vav he. Are you going to put an is here? No, then what does it mean? Yod hey vav hey echad. What is it? If you don't, and I'm I'm fine with not putting an is there. If you don't put an is here, what does this mean? Listen up, Israel. Yod hey vav hey our God. Yod hey vav hey what? What is it? With no is, what does it mean? You you can't use the word one here unless you say is. You can't because yod hey vav hey one. Like you have to put is. Yod hey vav hey is one. If I don't put an is here, what do I have to retranslate this word? What would I retranslate it as if I don't put an is here? Alone. There you go. Well done. 
Yud Hey Vav Hey alone. If we read it this way, if we do, if we take out the is here, and we take out the is here, but we don't put any is in, then we have to retranslate Echad, and there is attestation that Echad has been used to mean alone, although usually the more normative verb is Levad. So usually if you're going to say alone, it's Levad, even in Torah. But it has, there is attestation of Echad being used as alone. So then what does this statement become? Listen, Israel, yud heh vav hey our God, yud heh vav hey alone. What is that a statement about? So what is this saying? Why, what, what's the big deal about this statement? Yud heh vav is our only God. Yud heh vav hey is our only God. So what is this not a statement of, which we usually assume it is? That means it is not a statement of monotheism. Mm. Do you follow that? Yes. Because yeah. if it's yud heh vav heh alone, it means there might be 700 gods. You, Israel, right? Who's your god? Only yud heh vav heh. Don't you worry about Baal. Baal will take, you know, let, let those people deal with that. You just worry about the yud heh vav heh business. And if we say our god alone, it means... It's nobody else's, too. Actually, uh, actually, no. And actually, uh, <laughs> I, I rarely say that, but it's right, too. Um, because actually, I want, it's a good point you bring up, Judith, because actually we believe this actually may have been a, uh, a missionizing a missionizing if there's if there's because we're going to go to another interpretation of this which might suggest then there is nothing else to worship that is really God and 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 on that day God will be one and God's name will be one everyone will understand name and worship so it's not a restatement of the chosen people. It's only our God. It's instead. Well, yeah. Correct. It's not saying it's only our God. Right. It's saying it's this place. for us is our, our only God. God. Now, the, there's more interpretations that we're going to go to that get closer to the monotheism business. But it's not saying that others might not also worship Correct. That right. For us, this is it. Yes. Correct. For us, yud heh vav heh alone. It's the only God we should be worshiping. Correct. That's exactly right. So this is possibly not a statement about monotheism at all. It became one. I'm not suggesting it didn't become one. It did. In the Middle Ages, it's very clear. This is a way to say we don't believe in... Zoroastrianism, you know, that was, and that's earlier than the Middle Ages, but, you know, good, forces of good and bad at work in the world, you know, warring with each other constantly. We're not a dualistic tradition, right? So there's, there, it is later definitely a statement of monotheism, but we're going to do what we always do in Torah study, which is go back to the biblical Hebrew, to the biblical world first, and see that if we take out both of these is's, then what it's saying is, listen, Israel, yud heh vav heh our God, that translation that we just did, that little game we just did, makes this, however, problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why do you need to say that again? Mm-hmm. You've already said it. Shema Yisrael, yud heh vav heh our God, echad would have been enough, or levad, right? Like, you, you don't need a, it's like, you know, yeah. Department of Redundancy Department yeah. to yeah. put another yud, statement of yud heh vav heh when you just said it. So that renders it problematic. I'm not going to say impossible, but... Emphasis? Emphasis, right. So, but it's not the style, even in English, to do that. Right? In literary... You know, like, it just... You just, you just said it here. You just said, yud heh vav our God. yud heh alone. Okay, maybe it's... I mean, that's the way we can live with it, is to say, it's an emphasis, it's stylistic... It just is not normative in the language of Deuteronomy, right? To and we mean it. And I mean it. Okay. 
So that, that's how we're going to have to live with it. There's no other way to live with it, right? Because otherwise it just looks stupid. We have to say, if it's there, maybe it's re, you know, reiterating with importance and, and repetition, right, that we're serious about Yerevate. All right. What if we put in an is? If we put in an is, if we want to live with, if we want to say we're going to stay with what I said early, that Adonai Eloheinu shouldn't be separated, that it's a, it's a, a clause, a word it's a word pair, then we can put an is here, that I'm going to erase this and say, now it says, listen Israel, yud hey vav our God, yud hey vav is one. And how do you say is in is there a verb no, to no, be? No. Oh, okay. That yes, no, complicates it. Well, there is yihyeh, will be, hayah, was, which is, by the way, what we believe, many of us, is the origin of this whole business. Right? That's the whole business. If you look at the letters, yud, hey, vav, hey, yihyeh, hava, meaning hayah, was, hoveh, is. Present tense. So, the is, was, will be, we believe, might be the the, the derivation of yud hey vav hey. That it's not a being as much as it is being, capital B, eternity, eternality, existence, capital E, right? That the, the sum total of all of it and what runs through it, that it is... That, that that's the derivation but of yud heh vav heh. Again, for is that really is another problem. It, so it's another. It's still a problem that it's here again, right? So so we're going to live with the problem. We're going to leave it circled in blue, saying its emphasis. Okay, because how else do we live with it? Right now, we we can we can live with it a different way if we change some things. So it, so if we say Shema Yisrael, listen Israel, yud heh vav heh el yud heh vav heh is one. What what are we saying now? Oh, Monotheism. Monotheism. Okay. Because God is one and not five? Exactly. Yeah. What if we're saying yod hey is one, but there are 17 other gods? In other words, one meaning one of the gods. So, that, right? So what would that be saying, though? Well, it kind of negates the whole... Right, so to say Yudhav is one of the gods, okay, it could mean that, but that's not, what we but that's not exactly what it says. And what would be the point of that? Right. Well, there's some. Well, there's some some religions, and I don't know how many of these would have shown up in the Middle East, but there, you know, there's some religions where you have multiple manifestations of the same god. Correct. And actually, Christianity has that. Hmm. Uh, you, but you have a lot of that in in the Hindu religion. Then you have multiple gods, but they're all individual personalities, like the Greek gods or the Roman gods. Okay? So they could be talking about God is a unity. God is God is is his or her own thing. Or God is one of them. Or God is one with us or one with the world. Alright, now you're going now you're going somewhere else. Alright, so but yes, so so to your point, there were all over the ancient Near East the same god or goddess of a certain place. So you, like you said, with the Madonna of so-and-so, the Madonna of such-and-such, such, right? That you had what were local deities that then become, they get the name of the new major deity, but they're still associated with different places. So we do have in Kuntilat Adrud in the south, we do have um, yud hey vav hey of a certain place attested on the wall. So it is very possible, to Richard's point, that this is saying all those yud hey vav heys are the same. They are a unity. And it might have been because it was starting to not be. Right? That, yeah, everyone worship yud hey vav hey, but I worship yud hey vav hey of the trees in the north. Right? Not of the sands and the mountains. That's a different yud hey vav right? So that it was starting to become, because the instinct was for a local God and a relationship to that local 
that, that had been there forever, and now you're just giving it another name. Um, so possibly this is what it's answering and saying, all those yud hey are what? I have, I have a question of this in time. Remember when Rachel stole some of the local gods? Trophium. Mm -hmm. And she said, I'm having menstrual cramps, and she took them away. Is this maybe saying that all of those god, little idol gods are really just symbolic of one god? Where is this in relationship to her stealing her father's god? It's not. Okay, they're... They're very different. Okay. This is Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. That's Genesis. Yeah. yeah. So I think a thousand years. Yeah. Thank you. A thousand years in development from the stories that would have been ancestor stories that become our Rebecca stories. Yes. Because probably our Rebecca stories are from a much older tradition where she's the hero, the, the matriarch of that people that then comes into the people of Israel. Yes. So a, a pedimento, right, of different stuff. So, a thousand years. Exactly. So those sto the, the story of her stealing those trafim, those idols, are about her claiming the authority of her household that now they they are the gods of the house and she's fleeing the house she takes them with her to say i now carry the authority of this family we believe it might have been because of a matriarchal history that where those ritual objects were passed from mother to daughter and mother to youngest daughter so we have attestation of that in the, I'm going to stop saying that word. Like I've said it 14 times this morning. Um, that we see, we see that in the archaeological record. Uh, and so it's possible that in the Canaanite times, mother to daughter, and, and so she's saying, you males can't keep my, my heritage, my inheritance from my mother are the Trophim. It's a patriarchal tradition. So she's seen as stealing from her father, for her father's house, what she shouldn't have taken. But it has nothing to do with monotheism. It's actually evidence of, of polytheism within the early um, matriarchs uh, of Israel. When was this written? Was it post-exile or pre-exile? Who was here last week that wants to answer that? When was it written? Post. Yeah. Uh -huh. Pam thinks posts. She's going to write us a paper on I, why I, she thinks no, it's no, posts. No. I think that's what you talked oh. last week. I didn't say I see. I see. I see. We're not sure. There's arguments in the literature about whether or not this is the Josianic reform. And we, we believe probably some of this material is from the Josianic reform of around, you know, 600, 700. Um, we don't know. Um, but some of it appears to be post-exilic um, for people returning uh, from exile, and that's why it's placed as they're about to enter the land, because it's people who are about to re-enter the land. So there's arguments for an earlier date and arguments for a later date, and the way to harmonize that is some material is early, some material is late. So a question that I've been thinking about since last week, who was this written for? So the, the writers, who were, their, were they thinking? Did the people at the time read? Uh, or, and worship was centralized in the temple, so there weren't rabbis scattered about. And there the, wasn't this, a book. This centralizes worship in the temple, let's be clear. Right. It wasn't before. That's part of who it's written for. People who are worshiping in local shrines, people who are sacrificing at local altars. This is a religious reform to centralize worship in the temple. Now you ask, okay, who would want to do that and why? Right? So what we know about Deuteronomy is from later, is from the book, not later, um, books after this also part of the Deuteronomist's history, also called Deutero-Isaiah, right? So that tradition, Joshua, Kings, Judges, the, those books tell us a scroll was found in the temple when they were remodeling the temple. An ancient scroll was found, an original 
right? Way old one. We misplaced it. I don't know, right? It got put behind the plaster. Well, something happened. And the scroll was taken to Hulda the prophetess and was verified by her as being authentic, meaning old. That scroll, we believe, is Deuteronomy. If that's true, then the scroll was found while they were redoing the temple as part of a temple reform. That's King Josiah. That's under King Josiah, the Josianic reform. So this is usually, or has been traditionally, um, associated with that scroll that was part of King Josiah's reform. Let's put it clearly. He was put on the throne at the age of six. So whoever's running Josiah is is running this religious reform to centralize worship, probably to centralize power and authority in the king. Possibly because it's coming apart, to Richard's point, everybody's worshiping Yudhe Buffet of the South, Yudhe Buffet of the North, the one we've always called the Wind God, we're now going to call it Yudhe Buffet of the Winds, right? So kind of backsliding into, or local worship is getting really, popular, a lot of attention, and, you know, and there's a coming apart of the idea that we're all worshiping the one, this one God. And how do um, you communicate with each other? The, the distances were great from the desert on one side to the north <clears throat> that was so fertile. How did they communicate? So that I, I can't answer shortly. Um, there were pilgrimage festivals at which time everyone gathered. So presumably you traveled three times a year to, to be together and to hear things. Synagogues develop as local sites where people gathered to get news. So in the ancient world, you got a message from a city. Everyone gathered to hear that message, right? So those, it was called, the synagogues were called Beit Knesset, the house of assembly, because it's where you assembled to hear important stuff. It wasn't originally to worship uh, only you know, like it was that was your central place um, so it, I mean you can look at the ancient world and see their patterns of getting messages and communications kind of back to that but in a way it, right it's very interesting um, remember Levites are you know part of this whole business about helping take care of stuff they would have come from all regions to come to serve in the temple um, so the folks who are writing this are religious reformers who, who have an agenda. Uh, the post-exilic argument says God has withdrawn into God's heaven and now there's just a bunch of you know, rules and regs and ways that we're supposed to relate to that God, but God's not going to be walking around talking to anybody anymore. Right? The, you know, prop, you know, God's not going to come except to Moshe in our, in our book, but but the theology of Deuteronomy has changed, and people want to argue that is a that is written by a people who has experienced exile, the destruction of God's place, the destruction of God's house, and that God has allowed that because we stepped out of line. And this is what you do to prevent that from happening again. So there's right different levels of who who it's written for and why. Like what what's the agenda of of the author? But this wasn't written to be read by the masses because were the masses educated and able to, and there obviously weren't enough copies for people to have one in their home. So and to be studied like in 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 the ancient in ancient Israel, the method of teaching was not literacy; it was oral. oral. Yeah. It remained oral even after they were literate. Even after there was written, you know, materials, it remained mostly an oral tradition. So you had, um, what do you call that? The photographic memory. Didactic, what is it called? <laughs> eidetic. You had people who had eidetic memories, and they would be serve as the tape recorder. You would say, chapter 6, verse 3, and they would, they would expound, they would just say until you told them to stop. Stop at verse 10. Then they'd stop, right? Now we need Jeremiah 14. They would start with Jeremiah 14. So that it was, it was a, um, an oral tradition. 
which explains a lot, actually, if you look at, at, the, at the, a lot of this material. It, it's very much an oral uh, tradition. It, it seems to suggest in the Ve'ahavta, right here, that they were to teach it to their children. So there seems to be a suggestion that it was known to the masses. We know that they were called to listen to this Torah read every year. So it seems it was supposed to be given to the masses. Like how much they knew, how much they accessed, I don't know. I haven't done you know, a lot of research into that. But, um, but it seems it was to be shared with the masses, yes. But not by reading. Might that be another reason for repeating? Um, your name on Okay. Um, I like it better when I, it's... If I were to be learning it, I would have to have it repeated several times. If it were alliteration, I'd like it better as an argument, yeah, well, right? Because right? yeah. then it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, which is why we see that so much in Torah, alliteration and patterns. And oh, you're like, why do they have to say again with and the tribe of this one and the head of that one and the tribe of this one and the head of that? Because it's... It's the pattern. It's how you remember. You know, it's how you remember to say it. Um, all right. So we're going to go to now. What are we going to do now? All right. Now we're going to put it is in here. Because some scholars believe, even though this is a a clause, usually that the only way to really do this without the problem of this blue circle around the second yud hey vav hey, the only way to get rid of that problem is to put an is here. <coughs> so what do I mean when I say that? Now let's read it. Listen, Israel, yud hey vav hey is our God. yud hey vav hey, we might go back now, and we might use your... Alone. Exactly. We can put alone back here. So listen, Israel, Adonai is our, yud vav is our God, yud vav alone. So what might that mean? What does putting this is in here change? First of all, it solves this problem because it's two statements. Now you've got a statement up here. It's not an introductory. Listen, Israel, yud vav is our God. That's a statement. Now you can have another statement. And yud vav either is the only ours, meaning alone, or you could do, you could go back to one, right? That, um, that yud hey vav hey is one. So give me one more before we leave the echad. Give me one more interpretation of what echad can mean. If it's not one and not alone, what can that also mean? Only? Um, that's alone. Oh, unique. unique. If there's only one, it means it's unique. I just read a commentary for this Torah class this morning by Judith Plaskow, who argues that one means, kind of to your point earlier, Richard, inclusive of everything. One meaning there's, there's nothing else. There, there's nothing outside of that one. So this really reaffirms monotheism. So this really affirms monotheism. Uh, maybe not so much if you say unique, because there, you know, maybe a different God is unique in a different way. But if you mean unique in the universe, okay, ours is unique, but it doesn't mean it's the only one. But alone does. Alone does, or, or no, do alone means just ours. That's the only God we worship. Yudhevavhe is your God, only Yudhevavhe, right? So, but inclusive means there's nothing else. Uh, or outside of it. There's nothing left out of it. It is one with us. It is one with creation. What you were getting to earlier, Richard, it is, there's, you know, there's no his, her. It, it's all there. Black, white, good, bad. It's all included in yud Vavhe. vav he. That is a radical statement. So what does that mean? Anything? Because to, to include means it has to be more than one. Means it's all of it. So what if you just put everything? So we're used to thinking inclusive has to be lots of many different things and therefore, I mean, so what if you put, this is the collection of, of every force that's possible. There, it's not, divis, there's no division, right? So yes, it's inclusive of lots of different things, but we know that. Sad, happy, good, bad, up, down, 
Yes, those are all different, but that doesn't mean... I'm not explaining this very well. Right? So those are all in here, and that totality is is a oneness, is a unity. Right? Because that's a statement, isn't it? That all of that is a unity is a very, very powerful statement. That it's not this one and that one, and then they're going to... They're going to fight, right? It's this one and that one are are together and involved with each, right? And and let's be clear, this name of God, I'm stumbling all over myself here. I I who like love to talk, right? I'm I'm stumbling all over myself trying to explain this because Yudhe Vavhe can't be pronounced. We know that this cannot be pronounced. There's no vowels. There are mostly vowels. You can't pronounce this because it's ineffable. The stuff we're talking about is ultimately ineffable. I'm tripping all over myself trying to talk about it because these are hard things to articulate because words are logical and break things up and define. Like, and we're talking about something that is way bigger, way past. Like a breath. That, like a breath, is one of the, ar- the arguments that this is. Is you know your breath, right? Two haze and a like you know. You, that that's what we're dealing with. It's something way bigger than what we're actually able to talk about. All right, so if we go there that, listen up, Israel, yod heh vav is our God. yod heh vav is one, or yod heh vav alone, okay? So what what this means is, for you Israelites, yod heh vav is our God. Don't worry about whether there's any more, right? Probably is an early statement is, don't worry about Baal and whether Baal is around and powerful or whatever, or Isis or Ishtar. Don't worry about it. Yudhe Vavhe is our God. That's the God you're in relationship to as a member of the people of Israel. That's all you need to worry about. And that God is one. Or that God alone is your God. Or that God is unique and singular. Um, but it's definitely a statement about, it doesn't have to be a statement about monotheism. All right, so now that we are less clear, hopefully, <laughs> than we've ever been about the Shema, um, it definitely became the Jewish statement of monotheism in the face of Zoroastrianism before the rabbis. That was what they were up against. Hence, a lot of our prayer book. I want you to notice from now on, well, should you ever open the prayer book and engage with it, um, it, there's a lot of, creates light and shapes darkness. Like there's a lot of that because the rabbis were pushing against Zoroastrianism, which was the forces of light versus the forces of darkness. Our prayer book is filled with, so that's rabbinic writing, not biblical writing. Rabbinic writing, which is later, is dealing with, it's not dual. Right. God creates light and shapes darkness, right? Both of those things. You'll see that all over the prayer book. Uh, and that's why. So it's, it becomes a statement against the dualism of Zoroastrianism. It becomes a statement against the Trinity, right? When Christianity and the Crusades are putting people to death who affirm something else, right? Rabbi Akiva was martyred, um, put to death when he, when he, Refuse to go against the statement of of the unity of God, Richard. At what at what point historically do you have the transition from some, uh, sort of uh, an, uh, an, eth- an ethnocentric monotheism to a universal God? Wait, so ask that again. Well, when when did I mean? I presumably we believe that that God is that the God that we worship is everyone's God. Correct. Ours. At some point, yes, that shows up. When did that happen? So Zechariah, we see it already in Zechariah. So it's you know it's the, the it's already in the prophetic literature, and that's where we get by Yom Hahu Yed and Achad Ushmo Achad business is the prophetic literature. That eventually everybody will get it that this is the only God. So it does become a statement of monotheism, and I, I didn't mean to put Akiva in the Middle Ages; he was killed by the Romans. Uh, but um, but you know, his martyrdom gets quoted in the Middle Ages when the Crusades are happening and people choose to die rather than negate their belief in the one God. Um, and that's by 
people who believe in the Trinity. Um, so it's, it definitely becomes a, a statement and a way of positioning Jewish belief as different from the dominant beliefs of the time. How limited are we in really understanding this concept and many others by working only in English, by not really mm -hmm. understanding Hebrew? It, we are very limited in our ability to really appreciate the complexity of a lot of the, the tradition. Without you, we, we'd be really. I just call it job security. <laughs> I'm, I'm good with that, right? Um, right, we, and it's, and even I, right, don't, you know, I don't even have, you know, nearly the knowledge of someone who speaks Akkadian and Sumerian, right, and can talk about here's what that word really means because they know the languages the that precede it, the roots of that, because sometimes we don't know. We don't have that word outside the Bible. So we can only do it from internally what, what it might mean. But um, that's the first step, understanding the Hebrew. Yes. It, you know, they say studying this stuff in English is like kissing someone through a veil. That's what the rabbis wrote, that you're kissing and there's intimacy. It's not that there isn't. But, it's your but you're kissing through a veil, and it's different when you're not kissing through a veil, right? The intimacy is a little different. Just saying. <laughs> um. <laughs> so immediately after this statement, what is the very next word that we get in Torah? Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha. So after a statement about us and our relationship to this God, we get a definitive statement about that relationship. What is that statement? I also love this about our tradition, that the next statement is, and you will love yud heh vav -Hey, your God. That that is our relationship. That's what we are called into, is a loving relationship with this reality. Um, and lots of questions you know, arise from that. Excuse me, how do you command love? You shall love. Like what Really? Like, you can't do that. But we see other places in Torah, you shall not hate your neighbor in your heart. Right? So it, it's not unusual in Torah to see language around commanding feeling, right? You, but if we really go to what it means, it means, it means behavior. Thou shalt not hate thy kinsmen in thy heart. Means don't act in relationship to them as someone who hates them. Don't bear a grudge against you, right? It doesn't really mean don't feel that. I mean, yes, you're encouraged not to, but it's more a statement of don't behave. Don't act as, act as if you love yud heh vav -Hey and all of God's teachings. Then how would you behave in the world? So it really isn't so much about commanding our emotions. It's about commanding behavior that would be in line with what it looks like to love, including honor your mother and your father. It doesn't mean you have to honor them in your heart. Yes, it would be lovely, and yes, that's encouraged. But it's you must behave in ways that demonstrate honor, kavod, right, to them, um, which makes much more sense, right? So, be'ahavta et Adonai lohecha, you will act as if you love yud heh vav -Hey in, as you act in the world, bechol with all of your what? Heart. Heart. We're going to go there in a second. Uvechol nafshecha, what's nefesh? Soul. Soul. I just love it that y'all know this so well. Uvechol meodecha, and with all your... Right. Ah, all right. All right. We got it. What is the difference between heart and soul? Yeah, you all know this so well. Come on. One is feeling and one is being. Say more. What does that mean? One is what? One is heart. One is a feeling. And one is your being with your action, with your existence. So what is... So heart is... Feeling. Is feeling. Okay. But your soul is your belief and your underlying moral structure. So soul, nefesh, you're telling me, is your being? 
All right, so heart is temporal, like Amy Bernstein is not going to exist forever. And soul is eternal. But her soul might. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Um, soul is not temporal, right? It is, um, it is eternal. Okay. Any others? So in the, in the world of Torah, in the world of... Uh, biblical texts, there is definitely a difference between lave and nefesh. Um, and the the lave, right, the lave is the place in Torah, our interior self, that is the seat of thought, wisdom, decisions. All of that is the lave, is the heart. We We think of it as the brain. That's not how they thought in the ancient world. Lave is here. It's where your thoughts and decisions and impulses and, and all of that and, and how one thinks about the world, that is all lave. And nefesh, possibly more the seat of the emotion and, you know, and our expressive you know, self uh, in the world. Uh, and actually, there's a great excursus in here. I was trying to find it to quote it to you. But there's a discussion of what the biblical nefesh Nefesh means self, by the way, in Torah, not soul. Nefesh as soul is rabbinic. It's later. Um, nefesh is kind of the animating spirit of self. So you can say 60 nefesh went down to Israel or went down to Egypt, right? 60 selves went down, right? So there, there's not a sense of nefesh as, as separate from body like soul and body. Nefesh is later as the energetic versus the material self. That is much later. Um, so then what does it mean to say love God with all of your heart and all of your self, right, and all of your... Uh, it seems to be about, right, about our interior life, our, our what we would call mind and heart, right, and soul, meaning kind of the, the whole of who we are. Um, I, I do want to draw your attention to Lave, right? How would you say your heart? You could say Libra. How does it say it here? Bechol. Leva. Levavecha. We have two bets. Why? You don't have to use two bets. You could just say Libra. You know, the lave shalcha, your lave. But it doesn't. It says levavecha. So we have a beautiful teaching from the Sfatimet. A beautiful, beautiful teaching. What does levavecha mean? You have two hearts. You have two interior pulls. You have the pull towards good and the pull towards evil. You have the good inclination and the evil inclination. You are to serve yud hey vav hey with both of them. Lest you think for a second that your greed cannot be used to serve God. If you're greedy, good. Go get more members for KI. Right? You, you, you feel like you're jealous of what they got over there? Great. You built something here in good ways, in legal ways, in holy ways, that is going to bring in just as much money so you can have that kind of thing. Terrific. You lust? Good. Go home and make love to your wife. Your husband, good, wonderful. Make love to yourself, great. <laughs> right? So that, that it isn't, it, that you should be serving yud hey vav hey with all of your inclinations as the Sfat And it's an excuse. It's a spiritual excuse. I'm too lazy to do that. I'm too impatient. You're impatient, good. Get the board to move now on that policy. Good, move it forward. We're sitting around too long anyway. Meeting's too long anyway. Right? So we use it as an excuse to not serve the good, the holy, the true, the big, the gorgeousness. There's no excuse. Every one of our impulses can be turned to the service of the one. 
I, I'm sorry if I'm going to be just railing things, but I'm bothered too by two things. One is that word eternal there, which keeps making me think of there is an afterlife. Uh -huh. and, and the other thing is Mordecai Kaplan saying to me that the good force is what God is for us. This isn't talking about God. That's very important. What is this talking about? You. You shall love God with both of your inclinations. God forbid God has an evil inclination. We could talk about that where it shows up sometimes in here, but we're not going to go there today. Right? So your evil inclination. You tend to say, oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not religious. I'm, I'm, not involved. Like that, I, I'm not that kind of person. I'm very materialistic. No excuse. You're materialistic. Great. Then get to work on making beautiful curtains for the. You know, you love working with material. Fantastic. We'll give you some. Turn everything has is the opportunity to turn it into service of of the one. All all is us. This is about us. This is not about God. We already dealt with God. We dealt with what we're going to deal with today anyway about God. And one and singular and alone and unique and right that's that might be about God. It might it might not, but right? Seems to be about God. This is about us. You shall love with both of your hearts. And the last one is Ovechol. What? Meodech. <laughs> it's all of our Hebrew school backgrounds come out to play, right? <laughs> when we say, and all your might. Who uses that word? Nobody uses that word. We wouldn't even say that. If you were going to even say this in regular English, what would you say? With all your strength. strength. <laughs> but we all go, with all your might, right? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm laughing in a good way. It's wonderful that we all, that we know this text. You know this text, right? It's, it's wonderful. And the tradition, hearing these words from the tradition is reaffirming. But it, right? We love hearing all your might and not yeah. with all your strength, right? So me'od um, in Hebrew. So this is all your me'od. What is, so obviously, one of the ways it gets translated, me'od, means strength. 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 Power. Eh. As a translation, eh. Not great. Not great. So, better, what is me'od in Hebrew? Sort of. Me'od. Very. Very. So... <laughs> Didn't I just make it so much clearer? And <laughs> Thank you, Judith. Because I'm just making it so much clearer now to say, love God with your very. Right? That's what you need me for, to translate for you. So very, but also a word that we use for very is much. Better translation. Much better translation. Love God with all your muchness. Your abundance. Your abundance. Your fullness. Your fullness. And that's, so the rabbis so, want to say with all of yourself, yes, but also with all your material wealth, you know, with all of your access, with all of your negatives, muchness. All with, of your, your negatives with every, like you were saying. Hot, now, with we the fullness of who you are. The Senate and the House. The, oh, good. <laughs> we were I'm doing sorry, so we well, Judith. We were doing so well. Uh, um, right. So we were we were doing so well. Uh, um, but right. But but really, all kidding aside, the rabbis would have a lot to say about Congress and the way things are going right now in the Senate and the Congress and in our electoral process. Right. Torah and the rabbis would have a lot to say about that, and I think I'm going to be quoting them at Rosh Hashanah. Good. Because there's a lot there about, not that we can't contend with one another, not that we shouldn't debate. For Jews, debate is a sport. Right? If we were to get a gold medal in something as Jews, it would be in arguing. Right? We love to argue. We are masters of it. With all of our muchness. Exactly. With all of our muchness, we argue, right? And and then the rabbis say, oh, time to say the Shema, yeah. right? And everybody who was just arguing goes into the sanctuary and says Shema, affirming the oneness of all of it. And all of that debate and all of that argument is fine if it is L'Shem Shemaim, if it is for the sake of heaven. Then pull out whatever you got and go at it, knowing it is for the sake of of the bigger purpose. If you go at each other 
with sinat chinam, with a hatred that is about the person, then, right. then, it, is, then it is absolutely destructive. It is forbidden. You are to keep your mouth shut and go sit down until you get past. Like you, you do not engage when it's about fighting the person. Then it's off limits. And it's understood as destructive and as shaming and as, as terrible behavior. So that is a very important distinction that the rabbis were very clear about that we have lost, I feel, when you open you know, a magazine, when you open the newspaper, when you turn on the television. There, there is no sense of you can argue a point or argue a position without attacking the person. That that has become permissible, acceptable. The tone and tenor of that being okay is absolutely antithetical to a, a Jewish understanding of what it means to uh, engage with well, one another. Congress should have uh, a statement, you shall love your country with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. And your countrymen yeah. and women. Yes. And the ideals of your constitution, right? You know, the ideals yeah. that founded this country, absolutely. And it's the, the king in ancient Israel was commanded to write a Torah scroll. Personally. Personally. To write a Sefer Torah. So what would it mean for everyone right, who was in authority in our country to have to sit down and write some very serious discussions about how one is supposed to behave and how one isn't supposed to behave? Because that's a lot of what Torah is, is, right? What it would mean is that first they'd have to read it. They'd have to read it. They'd have to know it. Right? And then, you know, they'd have to confront it. Uh, every day. All right. I know we're going to stop, but I want to share a couple of things with you just as a gift to you before we go. Uh, her name just left my head. Poet. Marge Piercy has written a book called, wrote a book called, uh, and that left my head too. She wrote a book of Jew, her Jewish poetry is collected in one place. Uh, and this is her Shema and Behavta. Here, Israel, you are of God and God is one. Praise the name that speaks us through all time. So you shall love what is holy with all your courage, with all your passion, with all your strength. Let the words that have come down shine in our words and our action. We must teach our children to know and understand them. We must speak about what is good and holy within our homes when we are working, when we are at play, when we lie down and when we get up. Let the work of our hands speak of goodness. Let it run in our blood and glow from our doors and windows. We should love ourselves, for we are of God. We should love our neighbors as ourselves. We should love the stranger, for we were once strangers in the land of Egypt and have been strangers in all the lands of the world since. Let love fill our hearts with its clear, precious water, Heaven and earth observe how we cherish or spoil our world. Heaven and earth watch whether we choose life or choose death. We must choose life so our children's children may live. Be quiet and listen to the still, small voice within that speaks in love. Open to that voice, hear it, heed it, and work for life. Let us remember and strive to be good. Let us remember to find what is holy within and without. Amen. Can we read that at the high I think that is a fabulous so idea. Uh, and I will share with you um, Art Waskow's uh, Ahava, so based in, uh, based in this idea of the Shema and Be'ahavta. You whose unity is acted out in the wheeling of the galaxies and the pulsing of each atom, in the double spiral that spins in every living cell, and in the loop of memory and imagination, we praise you for loving us so deeply as to let your unity become transparent, seen, heard, savored, known to us. We praise you for loving us so deeply as to let our unity become apparent, felt, touched, nurtured, known to us. We praise you for the unity, tall and majestic, that heaps from the letters on the parchment of your Torah, that lights up our faces as we turn toward your teachings. 
that rises in the rooms where we gather to hear you. We praise you for the unity between the generations that lets us remember the wisdom of our forebears in order to deepen the joy of our offspring. That lets us imagine the needs of our offspring in order to sift the teachings of our forebears. Always renewing in order to return, always returning in order to renew. We praise you for the unity that draws all peoples together from the corners of the earth. We praise you for the unity of life that intertwines the earth and air and oceans so that there are no corners on the earth. We praise you for the unity within each one of us that we scatter to the winds like seeds of wholeness as we reach out to make your world more holy. Help us to harvest what we have sown. Help us to sense your unity within ourselves. Help us to be. Blessed are you, source of all blessing, goal of all blessing, whose unity appears through love. That's the Shema. That is his Shema. I wish you uh, Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.